Hello, everyone. I am Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed, and welcome to the next installment of Here to Help. This is our look at how Indeed has been navigating the global impact of COVID-19. Today, it's January 29th. We are on day 332 of Global Work From Home. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs, and that's what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us up at night. And we started this podcast back in April of last year as a way to share how we were working to help people in the midst of this unfolding crisis. COVID-19 has turned the jobs market completely upside down. Looking for work right now can feel extraordinarily challenging, and there are fewer opportunities because of the pandemic, and many people have had their confidence rocked and feel they don't know where to turn in their next search for work. Indeed is here to help, and that's why today I am honored and very excited to be joined by Chris Luck, CEO of Shaw Trust. Shaw Trust's mission is to improve people's lives through rewarding and purposeful employment. And for those who are struggling this month, Indeed announced a new partnership with Shaw Trust. And Chris and I are going to talk today about how that partnership developed, what we hope to achieve together, and what the future of work might look like. So Chris, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Good morning, Chris. I'm very excited to be with you. Well, let's start where we always start these discussions with just a check-in. How are you doing today? Um, well, personally, uh, I'm very well. I think this uh, this dreaded disease, um, I've managed to avoid it. My family have, so we're blessed in that sense. And also as an organisation, which is very much um, client-facing, there's a lot of face-to-face -face work to be done. Um, they're, they're in pretty good shape as well. I mean, we've not been without some, some tragedy and some sadness, uh, but as an organisation, our COVID impact rate is, in the percentage terms, is about 2.5%. And what we're finding across uh, UK uh, businesses is actually sitting around about 8 to 10% impact. So I think some of the very early work we did to get our heads and minds around what this disease might do and to take some, some measures early have proved to be um, uh, right. Uh, and of course, important, that means that we've been able to keep helping people. So your organization is um, UK based and I think well known out there for those folks who might not know about Shaw Trust or for the listeners in the US and other places. Can you tell us a little bit about the work of Shaw Trust? Sure. Um, Shaw Trust itself was founded as a charity to help disabled people initially into work more than 30 years ago, uh, literally founded with a, with a man and a minibus uh, on a mission in a small village called Shaw, hence the Shaw Trust name. Uh, today, we're, uh, we're a 300 million revenue organisation with 2,700 employees uh, and, and also 800 volunteers across the United Kingdom. And we remain committed to employment as our core pathway uh, to a better life. Um, so we are, we are a purpose-led not for dividends. I say not for dividends because the common expression is not for profits, um, but we are for profits because we want to put those back into social value programs, social investment. So we, we just don't disperse it in dividend terms uh, as a social enterprise. Um, so we do use a commercial model. We don't raise any uh, fundraising. We, we, we go out and we win contracts. We compete with the best there is in business um, through performance, uh, and then we deliver that as a social enterprise. Now, we still have the charity, uh, Shaw Trust Foundation, as our charity top coat. 
Um, our mission is to improve life outcomes uh, through access to rewarding employment. And when we say rewarding, it has to be uh, progressive. It has to be um, 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 purposeful and I think dignified as well. So we're sort of looking to make sure it's not it's not just a job for a job's sake. It's got to it's got to help people move on. Uh, whatever level they're at and whatever the next step is for them. So we're very mindful of that. But we also, uh, and importantly, recognise that success in employment and being able to be employed uh, and the good work that follows is critically dependent on what happens in people's formative years uh, and on the support they've received in that. So at Shaw Trust, um, we don't just do the big employability programmes. What we do is we have a child-to-career framework and we go upstream as far as possible to help overcome some of those early year challenges that might make it subsequently hard to get work. So this means for us, this is sort of an end-to-end -end approach. Uh, and therefore, as an example, our services do in fact include large-scale employability programmes, uh, careers advice services. We have a, a large multi-academy trust, currently 30 schools. Uh, and that's based in uh, an area of uh, social social disadvantage and social de deprivation. So we look after, uh, we give education to the kids who, who would otherwise struggle to receive a good education. We also have the, the 10th largest children's care home uh, business in the United Kingdom. Um, uh, you know, uh, in order to give those children a chance, you know, for good employment later. So we're very proud of our children's care homes. Uh, with that, we have a fostering service and we do a lot in the young people's services uh, area as well. The, the expression we use in the UK is neat, so not, not in education or employment or, or, or training. So how do you help those youngsters that are on the street corners and they're on the precipice of going the right way in life or the wrong way? So we do a lot of that. We also have a learning and skills training, which particularly includes technical training and apprenticeships. You know, we've started and we have a care and construction academy to help people get into good work. And those are growth areas. And, uh, and Chris, I think your, your data would, would, would show that is the case. Um, and particularly pertinent to the moment, health and well-being services. Um, and that's just to name some of what we do. But I, I, just to go back to our origins, we do traditionally work with people who have social, economic, behavioural and health inequalities, or perhaps a complex combination of all of those, uh, which then themselves create barriers to work. So those are, that's our traditional cohort. But COVID is such a national emergency. It is so, it has so impacted people's ability to, to keep work and be in work that we have widened our approach using our skills and competencies. And now, of course, in partnership with Indeed, which I'm delighted about, to help minimize those downstream problems created by people being perhaps increasingly distant from work, which is something that you and I both desperately try and avoid for our people. So I think that's sure trust. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you for, for that background. And I think it, it really underscores that uh, work and success is about a lot more than just getting a job. It's everything that leads up to it. And then it's all the support structures to, to help people through that. And and you do extraordinary work, so which is one of the reasons we're so excited about the opportunity to work together. We're going to dive into, into some of that in this conversation. But before we get there, um, you're relatively new in this role as CEO. You you just took it up in, in 2019. 
Uh, you had a, a really fascinating career before that. Can you tell us a bit about your journey and how you landed in this spot? Um, yeah, I, I have had a fascinating career. I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I, I, I had the opportunity to be uh, in the armed forces. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm technically now a veteran. Uh, and I know how important armed forces and veterans are to uh, uh, my colleagues in, in the United States. Um, so uh, very much a 35-year military career. I started off uh, uh, as a bit of a uh, enthusiastic youngster, uh, lucky enough to join the Royal Air Force as a pilot and spent uh, many a year, many an hour in the air uh, in missions all over the world, including uh, very familiar names, I'm sure, from Bosnia through to Iraq, um, several times in Iraq, I'm afraid, uh, and various other um, uh, trouble spots in the world. Um, but at the same time, the, the, the great thing about a military career is that it's actually a portfolio career. You know, uh, you have opportunities to do so much more. And I was lucky enough to command at pretty much all levels, all the way up to and including two-star, um, which gave me fantastic insight into uh, people, organisation, mission orientation, um, planning, uh, and being able to cope with uncertainty uh, and with uh, fog and friction. Uh, so actually that transition from that career, uh, and I finished off as the, the Commandant of the United Kingdom's Defence Academy, so responsible for education for all our military. Um, so being able to think about you know what you need to do was was how I finished my last three years in the military and I was able to bring that all to Shore Trust. Now the timing couldn't have been better in the sense that pretty shortly afterwards COVID impacted and then you're into crisis planning, then you're into building teams, you're into reorganization, you're into reorientating to the threat to your mission and making sure that you best use the resources at hand including through partnerships to get back after what you need to do. So I'm blessed with, first of all, a fantastic and enjoyable career uh, as, as, a as a military person uh, with some fantastic colleagues. I, I loved my flying, by the way. I thought that was extraordinary. But all of those skills, working under pressure, working uh, with multiple unknowns and variables that you can't control, uh, I think have translated really well into this role because it's a mission-orientated role. Um, and I'd like to think that I'm doing okay, uh, but I'll leave that for my chairman to decide. In, in some of the preparatory conversations, you had um, told a story about your experience recruiting in the RAF. And, and I love this idea of the, the portfolio experience in the military preparing you for, for this world. Can you, can you tell that story and, and how that uh, influenced your thinking? Yeah, Absolutely. So when I, uh, I also had an opportunity to be the commandant of the Air Forces College, um, which was a separate role earlier on in my career. And with that portfolio, at the time, you also got to be the, um, the, the head of recruiting for the Royal Air Force. Um, and that was really interesting for me because I hadn't been a recruiter uh, at all at that stage. Um, so this was new for me and it allowed me to really learn something new, understand a new world, understand something that was vitally important to the ongoing health of my organization, you know, recruit the right people in order to um, you know, maintain military capability, Air Force capability. So in doing that, I discovered that 
you know, the way we recruited at the time was extraordinarily traditional. We had a very traditional approach to recruiting. Um, and what that meant in today's terms is that we weren't particularly open to diversity because we were blind to some of our recruiting practices that meant that those diverse peoples, whether of ethnicity or of gender or sexual orientation, whichever measure of diversity you want to use, it meant that we were sort of closing them out before they even got a chance. And there were some simple things, for example, my, my recruiters would automatically expect, you know, uh, let's, let's say a young man, a young man, they'd expect them to turn up for their officer recruitment uh, and to be in a nice suit and a nice tie. Well, when you look at the demographic of our country, there aren't that many young gauche males of 17, 18 years old who necessarily own a suit. And they certainly wouldn't know how to sort of put one together for the day. Um, uh, and therefore, that put off an awful lot of people. But more importantly, they might have come, and they did come from communities, where if you leave your front door, everyone's seeing you. But if you're wearing this strange thing called a suit, suddenly you stand out. And that can make, that can make you very conscious, uh, or it can alienate, alienate you from your immediate uh, community. So there was a great reluctance to expose and it's things like being marked on your haircut. Did you turn up at your military first interview with the appropriate haircut? Well, if you come from a community where short hair is not the norm, then cutting your hair, first of all, is quite a, quite a high bar um, for something that is still an opportunistic moment. And of course, it marks you out in your community again. Now, there are communities, and it's the same in the States, where, where if you if you become an other then straight away you put yourself into sort of a no person's land in between so that in itself was minimizing our ability to recruit that which we actually said we wanted to do and there are many other um, um, similar sort of unconscious biases or processes and methods that acts actually went against what we wanted to achieve so we worked really hard to start unpicking some of those. It wasn't easy. You know, my recruiters initially thought I was the crazy one. Um, but we but we started to work our way through that. Um, but I think it's particularly pertinent for our organisations because that's recruiting. You can be a very bad recruiter without even realising it because you're not willing to ask yourself the question, is what I do fit for purpose? Is it appropriate? Is it Does it follow the values of the day? Um, does it tie into what the seniors are asking for? Um, and am I enabling it or am I disabling it? And I thought that was a really interesting um, uh, moment for me, which, I, which allowed me to make some progress in it. And of course, I've carried that lesson through throughout the rest of my career, my career to date. Um, and it's quite, it was quite a powerful one. So you joined Shot Trust and one of your first orders of business was to develop your 10-year strategy, which you unveiled and launched just before COVID hit. So how has that 10-year vision been tested by the pandemic? Uh, great question. Uh, and I'm delighted to say um, that it had stood the test. Now, as, a, as an ex-military um, officer and somebody who was responsible for educating the strategists for defence, 
I'm pleased to say that I was able to put together a strategy that that could stand first contact with with difficulty and complexity. Because the way I view a strategy is it's a lodestar. It's a direction of travel with the parameters for your organization to focus on. It's not the plan. It's it's not the exact detail. It's the idea being what I wanted to be was it was if 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 other direction or other orders um, were not forthcoming, the whole organization would know what its broad direction of travel was so they could continue to act. Um, and and if you had a problem or a challenge over the, the term of the strategy, then the strategy, as long as it was strong enough to hold, then it didn't matter if you lose the odd battle, you know, and again, just using some military analogy, you know, a strategy should should be able to withstand a, a loss of a battle. But you want to win the war. And it may well be that on, win, on, on your route to winning, to getting to your mission accomplishment, you might lose some battles, but it shouldn't mean that you have to completely change your strategy. I was particularly taken by some early study of um, FDR and Churchill very early on in World War II, before America um, joined, or, or just after America joined the, joined the war, where they had a very simple strategic decision. Um, was it West first or East first? In other words, did they fix the, uh, the, the the German regime or did they fix the Japanese regime first? Because they couldn't do both at the same time. So I thought that was wonderful because they didn't try and overcomplicate this. So strategy should be relatively simple and understandable. So the strategic decision for the whole mechanism below, whether it was Eisenhower as Supreme Commander, MacArthur out in the East uh, with Nimitz, was quite simply West first, East second. Uh, and that's what drove the whole war. So I think you can, even something as complex as a global war, you can simplify it to a strategy that all our people can understand, can focus and can contribute to, even if absent any other orders and instruction. So I like to think that our strategy has held up and we are still on strategy, despite COVID. Well, so, so let's talk a little bit about the impact of the pandemic, specifically in in how unequal that impact has been distributed, uh, specifically on the jobs market. So we just launched our partnership uh, in the last week. Um, let's talk a little bit about why we joined forces in the first place. So I think this, this the COVID has been a very cruel and very uneven disease as far as uh, employability and work. Same on your side of the Atlantic, same on our side of the Atlantic. You know, the sort of the 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 industries of the sectors that have been absolutely devastated are uh, hospitality, for example, retail, another example. Um, but those are also the traditional landing pads for relatively low skill, low wage, entry level jobs, whether they're for the uh, whether they're for the young or for those that don't have higher level skills. So those were relatively comfortable landing pads to get people ready for, but, they, but they've gone. 
At the same time, those those job losses are, by definition, for the low skilled, low pay, who can least bear the cost of not being in work, where they're, 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 the critical margins for them to be able to keep their head above water is much, much lower. You know, you and I have been impacted by COVID, but actually I've had the I've had the luxury of working from home. I've got my own room to work in from home uh, and I don't have to worry about anything else. So so COVID is very unequal. And I think the big challenge for us now is how do you help compensate um, for 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 some of that unequalness? So those that suddenly they find that their sectors have vanished and the likelihood of them recovering anytime soon is low. And at the same time, they're being encouraged to get into all these new jobs. You talk about green jobs, you talk about digital jobs. Um, but that's a real challenge when you're already low skill end of the market, because those need skills. So we've got to be in a position where we can rapidly start to produce programs uh, that can that can reskill, upskill and new skill. But we've got to do it at scale and you've got to be able to do it at pace. Uh, and that's quite challenging. I mean, one of the facts from our employability programs is that 27% of those we help have have no access to IT. So in a world that's about upskilling and digital and knowledge economy, well, if those individuals, if 27% of them don't even have access to IT, you've got a real problem there um, in A, helping them in the first place, and then being able to give them the confidence to get the jobs and to hold the jobs that they need. And digital poverty is extraordinary. Again, it's a very uneven, um, um, you know, digital access, digital competency um, is is not evenly distributed. Now put COVID on top of that, and it absolutely exacerbates the problem again. So we need to think really hard about how we help uh, how we help people. Um, And even if you gave them a computer, Chris, you've still got a problem of um, they might not have Wi-Fi. You know, they can't pay for Wi-Fi. So you've got that. So the whole digital access piece is a big question when you're trying to get people into work and when you're trying to get them upskilled and reskilled. And I think that's a challenge for both of our organisations. I know that indeed it's got some fantastic digital uh, products and methods to get people into work. But as I said, you've got this very large chunk of the population who, despite that, can't access it. So how do we help them? And that's something that we at Shore Trust are uh, are looking to, uh, which I hope will then connect quite well with once, they, once they're digitally competent enough, then we can connect with your organisation and find those jobs. Uh, one of the important themes that... Um... Shaw has focused on is this idea of confidence and the role that it plays that once you have a jolt to the system like we have here, not only are people put at at risk, but the lack of opportunity and the lack of, of resources affects their confidence, which makes it even harder than to find the next uh, opportunity from there. Can you can you talk a little bit about the role that confidence plays and and how long-term unemployment has been uh, affected through this pandemic. The shock of the sort of scale of suddenly losing your job and everything that comes with that, the security, um, uh, in particular the security around that, can unsettle anybody. 
I mean, I sometimes, and I have you know, put myself in a thought experiment. How would I feel if suddenly overnight that which I've been doing, which is effectively leadership for the last 35 years, the job's gone. And suddenly I'm, I'm sort of catapulted into an unknown uh, area, an unknown sphere, an unknown future. And yet everything else is still crowding in. You need to pay the bills. Um, and I consider myself one of the fortunate ones in life. To those that we help, especially those with disadvantages and disabilities, I mean, goodness knows how they must be feeling. So, so and that, that is a massive hit on your confidence. What if finding work is all about confidence? Confidence in your self-projection, confidence in your, in your core capabilities, confidence in being able to interpret that and explain that, and then to um, actually um, demonstrate it, then, then confidence is everything, Chris. And I think that is a key part of what we need to do is to make, is to give people the belief that actually their value, their worth has not suddenly vanished. Give them the belief that what they have can be repackaged, can be reinterpreted, can be retranslated into new opportunities. And that's really, really difficult, especially if you're at the sort of the, 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 the low end where manu well it's blue collar because that's quite hard to say well that 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 job it can be something else um it's hard enough if you're just thinking of it from a sort of a white collar perspective so confidence is everything uh, and it's easily lost uh, and it takes quite a lot of rebuilding um and sometimes you know just a, a, a you know a, a slap on the back and say don't worry everything's okay it's not it's not enough we need to be far better at helping people build confidence and then of course maintain the confidence because uh, again I don't need to tell indeed you know every time you put an application in doesn't mean you're getting a job you might put one two three four five applications in what happens if you get knocked back what happens to your confidence so that part of how do you still keep holding hands with these individuals whilst they get knocked back which can be devastating is a real critical part of what we need to do. Connecting it to those already uh, distant from work, which you know, a short while ago, you know, less than two years ago, we we particularly concentrated on those with effectively barriers of one sort or another to get into work because it was a tight labour market. There was a high demand, and it was getting them into work. Well, they find themselves in a situation where they were already worried and anxious and lacked confidence uh, and, and belief in themselves because of their complex issues and challenges. Suddenly, there's the best part of two million people in front of them. You know, we've got airline pilots stacking shells in our supermarkets. But those are the jobs that these entry level first, first time back to work in sometimes years needed just to build up um, but but it's gone so for those distant from work we are very concerned uh, and we are in, in co coordinating with the government and with the department for work and pensions we are looking very closely as to whether the programs that we had whether they actually are fit for purpose and serve the purpose in this new dynamic of suddenly you know they're they're not having a tight labor market um, and not having much opportunity and having a whole queue of people ahead of you. 
I think that's really difficult, um, Chris. And there's a lot of work to be done there yet. And I think that won't, that's going to play out for the next year, two, three years. Um, my worry is it's going to make them even more distant. So we need to do something uh, and we need to do it quick. So one of the things that we are uh, doing as part of our partnership is this series of job search workshops that we've announced that are free online monthly employment sessions. Uh, I, my understanding is we just launched our first one yesterday. We had more than 3,000 uh, people attend. How do we hope that these sessions will start to address some of this confidence gap that we're seeing? Um, well, I think there's two ways of doing it. One is, I think, when people realize that we're there for them, that's that's a confidence hit that, or, or benefit. So suddenly there's something different that they can look at and engage with that's going to, with a, with a promise of new skill sets, new ways of looking at things. And secondly, it's by seeing people who um, uh, who have lived experience and can give comfort, if comfort's the right word, but can give confidence to those um, 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 tuning in that actually there is there is there there is work. Um, there's a way of reevaluating what your skill sets are, and you know there's there's a pathway to success. So I think I think I think that's really what the benefit of this is is to is to is is to it, first of all make sure that they don't believe they're forgotten and lost. Um, that they know that that an organisation and a partnership such as ours is going to hold their hand. They're going to step them through. And we're going to add value rather than just saying, fill in this paperwork and we'll see what there is. Um, and I think that in itself will help them get out of bed. Because when you're, when you, when you're down, when you've been knocked back, when, when, when life looks dark and bleak, sometimes it's hard to even get out of bed. Um, and I think if you've got something like this, something constructive, something that they can focus on and, and get value out of and be stepped through, and that's going to get them out of bed in the first place. That's going to get them focused, and then, uh, and then uh, we hope get them into work as quickly as possible because they're open to work rather than just closing down uh, and thinking that there's no hope. It, it's about so confidence is about hope. You've got to make them think they hope. And I think you know uh, what you're doing with access to your online uh, workshops, um, and I think you've got you have got my chief of staff who's acting as one of your confidence ambassadors. I think that's absolutely the right thing to do. So one of the things that you talked about when you told the story uh, about recruiting at the RIF was the um, the importance for employers to actually be looking uh, to hire more diverse pools of talent. What are some of the things that we can do to help influence employ employers to want to take this challenge on? Yeah, it's it's a great question, Chris. And I think I think COVID has changed things. It's changed the dynamic. Uh, employers employers are are not desperately seeking people for work now because there's a lot of people looking for work. I think the challenge of opening their eyes employers' eyes to the talent that resides in those that traditionally found it really hard to get work is one thing, but trying to get them to uh, open their eyes, make reasonable adjustments for people with challenging circumstances in a COVID economic crisis is a whole new ball game. So I think 
I think for what we need to do is 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 keep messaging, is keep um, um, clearly and articulately demonstrating that that these people that we're looking after as well um, bring diversity of background, bring diversity of challenge, bring diversity of perspective, which can be really valuable to organisations. And again, I know indeed is absolutely you know data alert data driven the data is quite clear if you've got an organization that is diverse in all senses both in the protected characteristics but also in background in life challenges that it drives those businesses on to be better and better and better but you've got to be able to show the data prove the data and then we've got to make sure that those candidates that we put forward are prepared uh, and we've got to make sure they are genuinely prepared, not not just ready enough for a quick exchange and a quick buck and we're out. That's that's not what we do. It's not what Indeed does and it's not what Sure Trust does. We get these people to show that they're ready for the opportunity and then we make sure we help them sustain in work. That's what we do at Sure Trust. It's how do you hold their hands for a little bit longer rather than just saying, well, we've got them a job, we're done, let's go and find somebody else to get a job. That's not what we do either. It's about good work which is sustainable uh, as well as rewarding as well as dignified and those are really difficult because we can't not have some empathy and sympathy with employers as well I mean they're they're in a pretty dark space at the moment you know we just need to look at the economy in the states alone you know your 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 new president is trying to get a 1.9 trillion economic package landed to help and that's eight percent of GDP that's a lot of help required. So I think the task is enormous. But for us, the key thing is is to not be, I don't think, not, not to be overwhelmed. This is our calling, actually. This is our moment. Uh, we're, we're, we're almost counter-cyclical. In a time when, it, when it's easy, it's not really a mission. When it's challenging, and we've got to help, really help people, and come up with innovation, come up with alternative pathways, come up with different ways of an, acknowledging the environment and then changing and, and 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 you know morphing into it you know that's our that's our job to do so quite quite long-winded on that one chris and a little bit ethereal but i i think you know the key thing is 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 the principle behind it that we've got to get after yeah i uh i could not agree more with with everything you just said and you know one of the things that we think about and i'd, I'd really love to hear your thoughts is obviously going from an incredibly tight labor market to the the world that we're in right now a, a huge amount has changed um we're trying to help carry people through this and and obviously the work that you're doing is try to do that in a sustainable way when the market returns to something we don't know what it will look like but something that is that is more stable um what long-term effects do you think of this upheaval will still remain and what will that new normal look like you think yeah that's another great question chris that could have me talking for an hour and i'll, I'll but i'll try not to do that um i think the biggest challenge at the moment with the change in the labor markets um is first of all is is the it's a significant collapse of traditional uh sectors hospitality, retail, uh, aviation are easy ones to reference. Now, those those will recover, but we have no idea of uh, scale and pace. 
Um, but we've got a lot of people looking for work now. So there's a sector that we have no real sense of when it's going to recover. Our, our governments also tell us, oh, but don't worry, because actually we're going green and new work and new jobs are going digital. We're going knowledge economy. We're going up the value chain. Well, first of all, you've got to have people and resources to help people to help make that journey and secondly there's a disconnect between the timings of people needing work now and you know new new jobs new careers new work in in in, in what are for many people are in these exotic new areas of of green and of digital and of knowledge economies you know our, our blue collar colleagues you know how who have used uh, used their, their their hands to do good work you know, something telling them, don't worry, there's a job for you in that. But first of all, you've got to get them the resources and the training to get there. Secondly, where are these jobs? It's a five to ten year cycle to suddenly change your economy. I mean, if we talk about green and green cars, for example, most governments and most um, car manufacturers have committed themselves to change. And what they've said is they're going to be all electric. Um, there was a, another car company, I can't remember their name, but just yesterday announced that they would be all electric. And by 2035, they would be. Well, if you're going to build an industry of the back of that growth in that green sector, then 2035 is a very long way away. And it's the same with um, um, energy. There is a lot of promise, and it's right and proper, by the way, to go for green. Um, but that the you know the scale and the pace doesn't match with the scale and the pace of the current COVID emergency. So that worries me. Is how do you synchronise the need of today with the opportunity space that everyone talks about? Because the gearing doesn't work at the moment. Um, and you and I we're in the business of shaping people for work that exists or near exists and connect them to work that exists. But what we can't do is create the jobs. We know we're not in that we're not in that game. And I think our economies are going to take a while to spool up and start to create the jobs. So so as an employability organization, as a recruiting organization, that's a that's a real challenge. Um, and I think that's a whole of that's a conversation with government, that's a conversation uh, with the, the departments that we normally work for to say how do we synchronize and then how do what's the what's the safety net in the interim so I think there's a bit of advocacy work there as well now we do have a policy institute which a, aims at advocating for good work uh, and, and shaping the future of good work so I think they've got a lot of work to do so my policy institute are working hard in conversations both with um um, yeah, government ministers and shadow ministers, so those ministers that are in opposition, um, to try and have a a one view, one approach as to how we shape the employ employment market going forward. And education's a huge piece to this, huge piece of this, and it's really, really challenging. You know, in the United Kingdom, we spent the last twenty years really dismantling our vocational approach to education, technical training, and just going you know, all in for universities and degrees. Well, they've just discovered that that is not sustainable when you have a transformative event such as this, when suddenly it's about work, it's about skills, it's about the ability to quickly 
change into and do something different. Well, a three-year degree programme doesn't do that for you. What you need is the intervention that gets you back into work within six months, 12 months at the most, and you're supported on the way. And that's a huge political debate in the United Kingdom today and will be for a while yet. So there's a government white paper out of education about skills, technical competencies, qualifications, and how we fund that. So that's quite a challenge uh, coming ahead, but we're fully engaged in, in that debate. And you know, having having a multi-academy trust ourselves, having a learning and skills uh, company as well, that's really important to us, making sure we're doing the right thing so it all connects to good employment at the end of the day, which is what we want. We could go on for, for hours here. This is a, a, a really uh, vital conversation, but um, with time running out, just to wrap things up, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the experience of COVID-19, the pandemic, the last 10, 11 months, how has this changed your perspective personally for the future? Um, I'm going to be sort of slightly, um, I'm going to say it hasn't because my view of the world and life has always been one that it is, it is, it is contingent and it's contextual. And black swan events are not uncommon, um, and that the the that and that the baseline human nature of creature comfort and certainty um, is is ephemeral. It's not it's not real. That's not what life is. And I think as a military uh, individual, as a military leader, as a military strategist, that that sort of contingency and what happens if it goes wrong. Um, because human nature actually um, um, is more inclined to, um, to 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 missing the lion in the bushes, as it were. Um, you know, we we so 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 actually, COVID and its impact has just proved to me that you need to have organisations um, whose mission who who which are robust and are resilient and can have scope for contingency um, and in order for them to keep being able to deliver their mission. What COVID has shown me again is that good people will do amazing things despite the odds. And they are precious people. You know, the for example, my my children's home staff. I mean you can't abandon children's homes because government tells you to stay at home. Because the children are in the children's homes for a reason, um, and it's face to face, and the and you know in some of our children's homes we've had fifty percent um, uh, COVID cases, you know, but and we've had people have to move in and willingly and volunteer and volunteer to move into the children's homes so you minimise the in and out of staff to minimise the transmission rate as far as possible and effectively abandon their families. And normally you only do that when you're in uniform and you get sent to a foreign land to do to do the commander in chief's bidding. But my people are doing this and they're doing this willingly. And I think it's extraordinary. Um, so, so, you know, I, I don't get too fixated on those that keep going to parties and reveling. I get fixated on these amazing people that will do the right thing despite the challenges, despite the risks, because they believe in the mission 
So I better make sure that my mission is purposeful, is believable, and is and is supported. And I think um, I think I think that's what I do. I know it's what you do, Chris. Um, so that that's how I view the world now. Well, thank you, Chris. That's a really inspiring way to I think wrap up this conversation and. We do care about the same things and our missions are, are intertwined, but it's also so clear that the experience uh, and the remit of your organization is quite a complement to ours. There's so many areas that we care about the end result, but that we can't have the, the reach that you have. And we're so uh, excited and humbled by the opportunity to partner with you to try to solve some of these larger problems that um, it takes uh, a larger coalition to really tackle and uh, we're inspired for this this fight ahead so thank you so much for joining me today thank you chris thank you for having me